Lord, open my lips that my mouth would proclaim your praise. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Such was Isaiah's call to the people of Judah in his day. And such is Isaiah's invitation to each of us, even this day. This morning, as you have certainly caught on to by now, we embark on a new chapter in our journey of faith, a new year in the church's calendar, a calendar that plots our annual trek through the Annunciation and birth, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the coming of his Holy Spirit then upon his church. A yearly rhythm of preparation and celebration. We see that over and again, preparation and celebration, preparation and celebration. And it's a rhythm that begins this day with waiting, Waiting. One of the things that we do very poorly as contemporary Americans is waiting. Whether it's, you know, waiting for the turkey to be done, or waiting to decorate, or waiting for Amazon to deliver, or waiting to unwrap that gift that is just tantalizing us sitting there uh, looking to be unwrapped. This time of year brings out our inability to wait much more clearly than at other times, doesn't it? And it creates quite a contrast to my mind. While everything in our culture propels us toward the rejection of the discipline of waiting, I mean, who else got uh, emails this week encouraging them, don't wait until Black Friday, get the deals now, on like Monday, right? In this same season, the church urges us, wait. For those who are new to the Anglican church experience, I guarantee that you are going to feel it keenly. I keep hearing Christmas carols at the mall. Why aren't we singing Christmas carols at church of all places? You've got a lovely tree over there. Why isn't it lit and decorated? But this sense of tension that we feel is very deliberate. Because at its heart, Advent is a season of waiting. This is related... uh, to that forward orientation directed toward that which is not yet being experienced. Forward orientation toward what is not yet experienced. That's related then to the virtue of hope as well. That motion of the soul that humbly acknowledges, I need something that I don't yet have. And so I'm looking for it. That's hope. I choose to trust in something, believe in something that I do not yet see. Waiting is also directly linked with faith, as the author of the Hebrews to the Hebrews writes in Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith and hope as conviction, the expectation of the unseen promised realities that God has declared to us in his word, that is what we wait for. And that is how we begin this new Christian year in this tension of expectant, hopeful, watchful waiting. 
Thus we begin this first Sunday of Advent hearing from the Old Testament's clearest voice of hopeful expectancy, the prophet Isaiah. The prophet who, guided by the Spirit of God, declares some of these unseen realities that have anchored the people of God, old and new, in hope. So if you have your Bible this morning, you'll want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. But yet what Isaiah declares here seems like a tall order for God to deliver on. There's a lot going on here. And what are we to make of it? Is this, you know, something, this prophecy, is this something that we need to read and say, oh yes, uh, Isaiah promised that and it has happened. Like, for instance, when he says to King Hezekiah that his son wouldn't reach the age of two before the Assyrians came in and decimated his newfound ally in Syria. Or is this something not unlike that wild last book of the Bible that none of us really like to talk about, the Revelation, that is, you know, somehow filled with things that will not be fulfilled until the end times, however we're supposed to understand that? Well, I'm glad we're asking these questions. Because as we must always do with Old Testament prophecies, well, any biblical prophecies, but Old Testament in particular, we have to appreciate that there is texture and dimension to Isaiah's words. Because the answer is yes, both. There are elements in what Isaiah says here in chapter 2 that are already completed, done in the past from where we're standing, and elements that have yet to see their fulfillment. Some of you have heard me use my favorite analogy before, when talking about biblical prophecy. From here in Fort Collins, if you are fortunate enough to catch a glimpse of our iconic 14er, Long's Peak, down there outside of Estes Park, from here it looks like a, a twin peak, right? It looks like two summits right side by side with each other. They're pretty much the same height and depth and all of that, right? But as a mountaineer who's had the privilege of standing on each of those peaks, I can assure you that they are not the same. Long's is a good 350 feet taller than its neighbor, Mount Meeker, and there's about three quarters of a mile between them. Uh, Mount Meeker is about three quarters of a mile further east, which is why they look like they're equally sized from here. But until you are up close and can appreciate that dimension from here, it looks like almost like one mountain with two peaks. In the same way, biblical prophecy has a a distance and a a dimension and a texture to it that was not visible to the prophet or his original audience when he uttered those words. Just like that three-quarter mile distance between the two summits, there are actually thousands of years of space between some of what the prophet utters and its fulfillment. Or even thousands of years of, of space between some of the fulfillment and other portions of fulfillment. There are portions of these words that have been fulfilled long in our past by now. And there are portions that have yet to be realized. So when the prophet declares, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, we can look at that and see how indeed in the past that has begun to be fulfilled. All this fall, we walked through this series from the book of the Acts of the Apostles, 
tracking the movement of the gospel presence of Jesus in and through his church out from Jerusalem, aka Zion, into all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost ends of the earth. That was a witness of the fulfillment of these words of the prophet. The law having been fulfilled in Jesus and in the love of Christ as we heard in the scriptures this morning. The law having been fulfilled in Jesus was carried out from Zion, from Jerusalem to all nations through Jesus' word and presence carried by the church. Even when we read about Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, the meeting of place, the meeting place of God with humanity being exalted above all others with the nations flowing to it, we can see that being fulfilled, at least in part, in and through Jesus and his body of the church, Jesus declared that he himself was the dwelling place of God with men, that he himself was the temple. Remember, he said, Tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. And everybody's like, you can't do that. It took 40 years to build this temple. And, and the, the gospel writer says, he was speaking of his temple, the, the, the temple of his body. Jesus fulfilled all of the purpose and promise of that temple. And certainly we can see through the last 2,000 years of history, the way that temple, the body of Christ, has been elevated and how members of all nations of the world have streamed to it to meet God. But then there's that other part in Isaiah's words, isn't there? The, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore part. Well, if I talked about the tension of Advent between waiting and gratification, here's an even greater tension that we feel in this season. As we read about the ongoing slaughter in Syria and Iraq, violence on our borders as you know, drug lords kill Mormons of all people, as we face an opioid crisis at home, protests and government backlash in Hong Kong and in places, various places in South America, impeachment hearings, frequent reports of men abusing their power, and the list goes on and on. Certainly does not feel like a world where disputes are decided equitably by Almighty God, where implements of war are beat into implements of universal flourishing where nations no longer take up arms against one another or learn war anymore. Where is that world? On this first Sunday of Advent, we lit the peace candle in our wreath. And that's why we read this passage from Isaiah about this establishment of everlasting peace in the kingdom of God. But that just sort of sharpens the tension, doesn't it? We don't even have to look at the scale of global events to see the evidence that screams at us, peace, is that just a delusion? As some feel, you know, anxiety set in over this or that child and what he or she is struggling with right now. Or some feel the apprehensions over that medical test or diagnosis or this job or these finances. 
as some are reminded on this holiday weekend that their family never learned to put the fun in dysfunction. And all we are left with is pain. As I look at all the hard evidence in my life and in our world that pierces my mind screaming, peace, what peace? Where is that world? Because that is not the one I am experiencing and living in. I'm living in tension. As I read some articles that Sarah forwarded me this week about Advent, Several of the authors we read were asking the question, in such a world as this, how can we even contemplate celebration this time of year? One Anglican pastor pointed out that for many of us, quote, the hallmark version of Christmas that we've grown up to believe is normative only serves to further shame and disillusion those of us who experience significant and increased pain during the holiday season, whether it's the pain of loss, mental illness, or other experiences of brokenness. And yet, it is exactly in such a world as this, with its brokenness of personal, familial, societal, and global levels, that we need a season such as Advent. Because the church teaches us to enter into this time of expectant waiting. How? By acknowledging brokenness. Acknowledging our own brokenness through confession and repentance. Turning from the ways and places where we have fed the cycle of brokenness in our lives and in the lives of others around us. And in so doing, we acknowledge the darkness of our world. That's why we began with this great litany that was so focused on our own repentance and the great, great need of our world. Because we acknowledge darkness. We acknowledge that despite what Bob Marley told us, every little thing is not going to be all right. Not until the light ultimately shines in the darkness. When Jesus returns and the light of Christ shatters the darkness and the spear and the sword. That is the vision of the world that Advent teaches us to wait for to look for, and yes, in the meantime, even to labor for. Advent is, in fact, the ultimate antidote to the unreality that is the Hallmark Channel American ideal of the holiday season. Again, Anglican pastor Hannah King, she writes, Advent breaks us out of the false expectation that all must be well or even will be well in our world until the light of Christ comes in fullness. It allows us to name our longing, to be sure, but not with the expectation that it will be fulfilled on or by December 25th. Rather, Advent compels us to cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Advent teaches us to live with unmet longing. It is the season of exile. And while Advent rightly gives way to the celebration of Christmas, it also serves as a reminder to us that not even the incarnation is the final chapter of the Christian story. Advent rescues us from the Western ideal of the Jesus of Christmas as infant child, meek and mild coming to make a homey addition to our snug, comfy holiday scenes. 
Rather, we are reminded that Christ came as a vulnerable child to enter into the battlefield of this world. To enter into this brokenness. To shed his own blood, sweat, and tears. To share with us in the struggle against darkness. And to be beat down and broken by it. So that through his great victory, a brutal death upon a cross... And then a resurrection. That we might share in his bringing of the light. And that is precisely what makes Isaiah exactly the voice we need to hear in this season. Appreciate for a moment that this vision of hope that Isaiah foretells comes in the midst of a lot of other rather harsh words that Isaiah was given to deliver. Isaiah was sent to call his people to repentance over their brokenness. And a lot of the message reads sort of like a judge reading out the sentence to a criminal, right? You've done this, therefore this is going to happen to you. So when Isaiah declares these words in chapter 2, appreciate that his world did not look any brighter than ours does. Rather, one might be able to make an argument it was even darker. And yet, through Isaiah... The Lord holds out hope for a coming time when the nations would esteem the Lord's temple and the Lord's anointed. And even a time when that king would eradicate brokenness and war and pain. The hope we are left with here in the midst of Advent comes precisely because of that twin peak idea that we were talking about earlier. Two different sets of promises with a good deal of distance between them. But the one set has already come to experience some of its fulfillment. In Jesus, all those promises of the light going out and the nation streaming in have already begun. And so, what does that tell us? It tells us we can trust Isaiah. We can trust what God says through Isaiah. That he will honor his word. He has proved himself trustworthy with the first bit so we can maintain hopeful expectation of the fulfilling of the second. It may remain unmet uh, longing beyond December 25th. It may remain unmet, unfulfilled in our lifetime. But it is a vision worth waiting on because it is a vision that we can be assured will ultimately come to pass at the last. And so we enter into this holy season of Advent, this holy season of waiting, acknowledging, as we've already done liturgically, that the world is not as it should be, that we are in the midst of grave darkness, and yet acknowledging as well that the light of Christ has shone is showing and will continue to show in the midst of this darkness, bringing hope, bringing peace, even as we learn to wrestle with our unmet longings. And so, O people of God, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk through this season of waiting. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, our
are a God who has taught us to hope in the promise that out of death comes resurrection and that even in the midst of darkness, light has shone and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, sit with us as we sit and wait and as we look in hope. Lord, kindle the hearts of your people as we light candles. Light our hearts. Make us alive to hopeful and expectant waiting. It's in your name, our Lord, our God, that we pray all these things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.